so as I said, uh, the, uh, all you need to do is to turn your mind to that. And it can just be, uh, take just a second uh, as you uh, behold someone. And um, when you are experiencing that, there is actually no room for fear. When I first, uh, I'm going to open this up in a second to your, uh, to your reflections and thoughts and questions, but I wanted to tell you that I told you when I first came upon the idea of, of doing the four abodes interactively, it was at this evening workshop in Holland. And um, as I went around the circle and had people, you face each other, you face, uh, I uh, turned two men to look at each other who were uh, not on speaking terms. <laughs> and one was a uh, Dutch farmer who uh, had been in the resistance in the Second World War as a young man. And uh, the other was Professor Kantowski from the University of Tübingen, and he was very, very German. And, <laughs> and they had uh, crossed swords earlier in the day over a question uh, uh, that was brought up by a delegate, Chinese, somebody from the Chinese delegation. And they had taken opposite views on this and uh, then had... Uh, didn't want anything to do with each other. And so I didn't know this, of course. So the next morning after the workshop, I walked into the big room and over on, on a table, people were sitting, you know, rows of people, and they were sitting at a table together was Professor Kantowski and Pete, the farmer, and with arms thrown over the shoulder talking. And, and then Pete jumped up when he saw me and he came over and he said, I have to tell you what happened last night. And he said, when you um, did the four abodes, you, the first one of loving kindness, we just sat there and just, we re refused to move our eyes from the other's eyes. It was like a staring contest. And they were not going to be the first to look away. And he said he looked through and he's like seeing a brick wall. And then uh, the next came Karuna acknowledging the pain in the other's life. And as I led that, what he saw or imagined was that brick wall crumbling down and they just locked. And then came working together, uh, that mudita as I, and um, I realized that if we had tried to sit them down together and say, you seem to have a difference. Can, we, can I mediate? Can we discuss this? Can we have a little nonviolent? No way that it happened just without words. So often we talk too much. So maybe it's time I shut up a little bit. 
So uh, I'd like to uh, invite some of your uh, reflections and thoughts and queries. So I guess the thing that really hit me every time I did that was just I really wanted to know that person. I wanted to know not only what they were thinking, more so who they were. And when you were talking about strengths and all, like, I really want to know what is it about you? What do you love? And things like that. And it just went on throughout everybody's eyes who you saw. And it, I guess it just opened you to looking more clearly and being open to everybody and what they have to offer, you know. And that's the most natural thing in the world. Mm -hmm. You didn't say, I ought to be interested. It's just that immediately the heart mind just, bang, ooh, what have we got? Um, I really appreciated your comments, particularly about being on the train and the the separateness and then kind of the enfolding of the outside in so that it was all inside. I, I think that was one of the most profound things I've ever heard, so I really appreciate that. In the exercise we just did, um, it was interesting. Of only one of the four people, as soon as I noticed pain... I didn't know how to bring compassion to it. What I wanted to bring to it was instant healing. So I found myself surrounding the person in a color, and you kept saying compassion, and I kept thinking, no, I want to help. I just want to help. And so I don't know if you have any comment about that, but it was, it was interesting. It was very hard for me to be with it. I wanted to do something about it. You know, you remind me, what's your name? Madison. Madison, of a, a placard in Sarvodia that I saw out in a village. And it said, Karuna, that's compassion, is not just feeling sorry for somebody, it's helping them. It's an action component. It's going out of your way to... Yeah, that part I, I could really... Re I, I just felt like I went into it, but it, it was just... I, I realized that there was such a thing as being with, and I couldn't do it because it felt painful, and I didn't uh, want to be in the pain. You wanted to make it go away. Yeah, I wanted uh -huh. to be in the helping. Uh, yeah, you know, that's interesting to note because uh, in my own experience, the things that keep me silent from what's bothering me because... People will want to talk me out of it or rescue me, and I don't want to be rescued. I want to be heard. Yeah. And in this um, culture, we're often readier to fix someone than to uh, join them in their distress. Thank you. Yeah, I was just very aware of that. And I just sat and I thought, I can't do this. I can do the light. I can wrap the light. I can't. I can't keep right in there with the pain. That was really tough. But if, uh, but when you think of the pain you're experiencing, if there's some distress over loss or potential loss or betrayal 
or something? Would you rather, do you want, would you really want it to be taken away or fixed? Maybe you want it just to be received. Yeah. I, I remember a while back talk, hearing someone who works with a, at a homeless shelter that gives meals at their church. They give meals at their church to homeless people. And uh, that person said, you know, they were from Denver for some reason. I've come to realize that uh, what these men want more than the meal is they want their pain to be received. Not fixed, received. Thank you. Thank you. Are you saying then that if, the, if you are able to receive their pain without feeling a need to fix it, that then you can actually offer something? Because what you said first was the saying on the uh, placard. Mm -hmm. Yeah? So can we do both? Why not? Okay. As you said, uh, yeah, let's see what our reflections are. I found it difficult to open myself, my pain, to the other person um, because I feel like the depth of my pain is so deep and I have some very recent stuff. I found it much easier to opening myself to receiving the other person's pain. Rather than sharing your own. Yes. That's yep. all. Um, the the uh, third part, when we were doing that, I was thinking of the second, feeling another's pain, and I was realizing in the third that I was experiencing my pain for the fact that it's difficult for me to connect in so many areas, whether it be a business, whether it be my relationship with my spouse, uh, at times with my kids, that there's that, that separation, even though I know that uh, th there can be joy in working together, for some reason I keep coming back to, I guess, my ego and wanting uh, to do it myself. And th that's creating pain. <laughs> You've had a lot of help from this culture, haven't you? <laughs> haven't we all? <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's strange to hear my... Speak. No. I want it recorded. Well, but I'd like also like to hear it. <laughs> okay. Um, I uh, I have been at a school in Duval, Washington, 
that uh, specializes in deep nature connection and sustaining that long-term through community connection, connection to self. And I, um, I had an awakening when I was 22 that led me to deep connection to the other than human world. And for the last eight years, I've been pursuing that connection for myself and learning how to share that. Part of why the awakening happened was because it was coming from a place of deep, profound darkness and pain. And through all these, all these connective practices over the last eight years, I have encountered or, or experienced so much healing, but also a holing. So much what? Holing, becoming more. And, and I'm on this journey now, sort of a transition between my time west, going east, going to get married in October and start nature connection programs and rite of passage programs. And I think what I'm, what I, what I'm struggling with is I'm starting to touch on so much power, my own power, realizing how much there is. Um, I, and I'm, I don't want that to, to separate me from from other people um i mean it's it's kind of it's easy for me to always be connected out with with nature but um i guess if, uh, i'd love to hear your reflections on that maybe even from a pers perspective of yogis or these people in tibet not to compare myself to them but just how do they what are the practices that help them stay humble and connected and, and connected to the suffering when they themselves are perhaps not feeling so much pain? And I, don't, I can't even put words to it quite yet because I'm, I'm just tapping into it. Well, you seem to be um, setting pain and power against each other, differentiating them or seeing them as contradicting each other. Mm. Mm. Um, first of all, of course, as you know, it's not your power. Mm -hmm. uh, the great, one of the great shifts of our apprehension of understanding that we're invited to at this point of our human journey is to see that power is not something you possess. It's something that arises in the relationship um, within a group or within people, people and trees or whatever that's in. Mm. So, um, and uh, to the ex it is my experience that that to the extent that uh, uh, I become aware of uh, my interexistence 
with all beings, uh, which comes and goes, obviously. There are moments I get very fixated on what Joanna wants now, you know, <laughs> or what I don't like about this or that, but what the, that opening up to what is dying to be born through us now. Uh, that uh, inter existence that can like be like the uh, uh, life blood or the um, neural web that can allow us to uh, do what no species has ever had to do before and no humans have ever had to do before, which is to see what we're doing on a massive scale to the body of our earth and to our climate and to the people that we're putting in prison, the people whom we're letting starve, this huge, incredible industrial growth machine that is running off its tracks, this huge capacity of security apparatus that we're letting people disappear in and that we're being asked to not only look at where we're going, but find the uh, Find the what, find the uh, life's love for itself that can move through us. And we can help each other. Everybody we meet, you can pull this out of them, but that's not your power. And sometimes it'll feel like pain. And one of the things that a big discovery for me in this life is to discover that the pain I feel for our world right now is not separable from the love. And that the love and the pain are like uh, two sides of the same coin. And I have to be willing to let my heart break. We all are here with broken hearts. Is that not so? So that's not just a shame. It means that we're uh, letting go of old self-definitions and defenses and comforts that we're too, getting too big for. So I love it that you are uh, hearing a little voice saying, watch out not to get seduced by the beauty of the power you feel coming through you. I bow to that. I must say, uh, J.R. Tolkien, mm -hmm. I just read a little article about how it's, it's a new myth. This myth, this comfort-loving hobbit needs to destroy the power of the ring. Like, uh, the, the author is saying there's no other myth that has that. Thank you. Well, actually, it's, it's there in, I think, every spiritual tradition, mm. but I have a particular fondness for the Hobbit myself. <laughs> uh, I was just amazed at how uh, the, I met the four most attractive people in the room, I think. I, you know, I, uh, and... Um, 
I wondered about that. You know, everybody in the room is attractive. Uh, and uh, the exercise makes me wonder whether I shouldn't give out more loving kindness and attractiveness on a daily basis. And I think that uh, I don't do it because I, uh, partly because of this person in the line is trying to beat me to the cashier and, um, <laughs> or to the parking place. And uh, so I don't have the sensation of, um, of wanting to be uh, loving kind toward them and uh, maybe that's what we all ought to do is uh, <laughs> give you. out more I'm going to uh, I just see the time uh, Gio asked me to give the Shambhala prophecy and I want to do that and I want to end with uh, a little thing on time is that okay if I just go on yeah okay Although I uh, did not uh, become a, a Vajrayana practitioner, uh, my relation to my uh, Tibetan friends that was the gateway to the Buddha Dharma uh, 48 years ago uh, has continued strong to this day. I even suspect that they are just as glad <laughs> that I'm not in Tibetan practice. <laughs> uh, because then I would be bowing and scraping and uh, more, you know, that they feel that uh, my family and I are their family. It just went off for a minute. Okay, thank you. So, um, uh, but a, a very important, but yet the teachings have been huge. Uh, that I have absorbed, for which I'm so grateful. And, um, <clears throat> and perhaps uh, paramount among them has been uh, a prophecy that they shared with me when I was back visiting uh, in 1980. And my, um, although I'd see them periodically, this time uh, my family uh, was with me. And <clears throat> my best friend in the um, uh, whole community was uh, Dugu Chigyal Rinpoche, who is an uh, incarnate lama and a painter and um, dear friend. When I got to, uh, and, there, and many lay people too, so when I arrived that time, I heard the lay people referring to a prophecy that they said seemed to be coming true in our time, although it dates way back to the time of Pema Sambhava 12 centuries ago. And they said, it seems to be about our experience now in this generation. What do you know? And I said, well, what is it about? And they said, oh, it's about a very dark and dangerous time. Well, that perked up my interest, I'll tell you, because you know I'm slightly apocalyptic by nature, as you may have picked up. And so I uh, went and, and uh, it's from the Kala Chakra Tantra, but I don't read 
Tibetan and us. So I asked people, and I heard three versions of it. And uh, the one I heard from my dear friend Chujiao Rinpoche was the one that, as he told it to me, it just landed. And uh, I felt I was getting my marching orders. So I want to tell it to you, as I have told it since to uh, other people. Um, it was an oral transmission, and I prefer it that way. But you know, about 10 years later after I got it, I saw that I was reading it in books by people who'd come to my workshops. So <laughs> I thought, well, if they've written it down, I better write it down. So at any rate, it's in, now it's in uh, all my books written since then. And it's <laughs> uh, about the coming of the kingdom of Shambhala. And in the prophecy, you'll hear reference to the term the Shambhala warrior. And you will probably recognize that that's a metaphor for the bodhisattva, whereas the hero figure uh, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, at the beginning it was seen as the bodhisattvas were the earlier lives of the Lord Buddha, but by the time the mother of all Buddhas came with the Mahayana and in her scriptures, as we are all bodhisattvas, if, that's, if we're truly as interconnected as the Buddha taught. So you will recognize that. <clears throat> so this is pretty much the way I heard it. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. In this time, great powers have arisen, barbarian powers, and although they waste their wealth in preparations to annihilate each other, they have much in common. And among the things they have in common are weapons of unfathomable devastation and death and technologies that lay waste to the world. And it is just at this time when the future of all beings hangs by the frailest of threads that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. Now you can't go there because it is not a place. It exists in the hearts and minds, in the heart minds of the Shambhala warriors. And you can't even tell a Shambhala warrior by looking at her or him. There's no uniforms, no insignia, no identifying banners, what side they're on, no barricades to climb on to threaten the enemy or to rest behind. They don't even have any home turf to walk on forever and always. They must traverse the terrain of the barbarian powers. And Shuja said, at this time, we've come to a time when great courage is required of the Shambhala warriors. Moral courage and physical courage. 
because we're going to, the Shambhala warriors are going to go into the heart of the barbarian power to dismantle the weapons and weapons in every sense of the word. They're going to go to where the armaments are manufactured and deployed. They're going to go into the corridors of power where the decisions are made and dismantle the weapons. He said, Joanna, mark this. The Shambhala warriors know that these weapons can be dismantled because they are manomaya. That means mind made. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind because the troubles that face us now are not brought upon us by some evil extraterrestrial power or by some satanic deity or even by some inalterable predestined fate. No, they arise from our choices, from our relationships, from our habits, from our behaviors. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. So he said, now is the time when the Shambhala warriors go into training. How do they train? I asked. And he said, they tra train in the use of two weapons. He actually used that word. What are they? I asked. And he held up his hands the way the lamas hold the ritual objects in the great lama dances of his people at Tashijong. And he said, one is compassion and the other is insight into the radical interdependence of all phenomena. <laughs> and you need both. One is not enough. You need the compassion because that provides the fuel, the motive force to go out where you need to go to do what you need to do. And what it boils down to is not being afraid of the suffering of your world. And when you're not afraid of the suffering, then nothing can stop you. But that weapon by itself is hot. It can burn you out. So you need the other weapon as well. That wisdom of the co-arising of all things. And with that, you know, that this is not a battle between the good guys and the bad guys, but that the line between good and evil goes through the landscape of every human heart. And that even the smallest intention, with a smallest act with clear intention, has repercussions through the web that you can barely discern, let alone measure. As important as it is, though, that's a little cool. You need the heat of the compassion. You need them both. And I remembered as I heard that, that that in my mind's eye, I saw the monks chanting in the puja hall with their hands moving their 
hands and moving mudras, and often as not, they're dancing the interplay between wisdom and compassion. Well, that was it. That was the prophecy. I was so excited. I went running down uh, the hill to where my family was. It was getting dark, and I burst in to where they were. And I said, oh, you won't believe what I just heard from Jujiao. Oh, and I told them. <laughs> and my son, Jack, he was in college at the time. He said, but mom, didn't he tell you how it's going to turn out? <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. I laughed, too. I said, honey, if Chucho had tried to tell me how it's going to turn out, I wouldn't have believed any of it. <laughs> and don't you believe people telling you how it's going to turn out. That not knowing is an absolute essential feature of our mutual belonging. So we learn to be, it's in that not knowing brings you present, brings you very alive, very ready to find out what's going to show up, including your own wits and courage too, as well as others. So uh, there I told it, Gio, he gave, I got an order. Thank you, Thank you Gio. I always feel as if there's a house moving through me when I tell them, it's sort of. <laughs> A lot. Whoa. I don't want to close today without, um, it's been a day for me of relishing my gratitude for uh, the what has happened for me and what I've encountered in the Dharma path. Uh, it's just the thinnest layer of all the uh, goodness. And there have been frustrations, too. You better believe it. But uh, basically, uh, what's kindling in me is a sense of how lucky I've been. And uh, what, I ha what has come into center stage for me in this a time of my uh, life, of our life, in this collective moment for us uh, has been uh, what we call, what I've called, deep time. Uh, that uh, I've gotten fascinated not only by uh, the Buddha's teaching of our uh, interdependence spatially, but also uh, time-wise, the interdependence between past, present, and future. The reason I have become so interested in this is it's been building over the last uh, 30 years is because of my ongoing obsession with nuclear power and nuclear weaponry and nuclear waste. 
And I find us as a species confronted with uh, having created something that last can last forever. The depleted uranium that we're using very profligately uh, has a half-life of four and a half billion years. That's the age imputed to our Earth. So in my activism, some of the wonderful brother-sister bodhisattvas that I've worked with have been at my side and helping me hold, sustain the gaze at this uh, uh, poison fire, as uh, we could call it, that we have uh, created uh, uh, in splitting the uranium atom. And that there has been, uh, on the one hand, we're alive now, where at a time when our karma, that is the consequences of our actions, extend into geological time spans. That what we're doing in a hurry <coughs> or for bureaucratic need or political expediency uh, will have everything to do with whether people in the future will have a chance to be born sound of mind and body because the mutation produced by the poison fire. And that term, poison fire, came out of uh, um, study action groups where we tried to get our minds around this. And I've written about that in my books. And in World is Lover, World is Self, the last two chapters describe the deep time perspective and the deep time work uh, that has been uh, so growing ever more central to my life. And indeed, in the last year, if I look at uh, the engagements, the talks and the workshops that I've uh, done, it's almost at least uh, three times out of four, the focus has been on deep time, on what the acceleration of time that we're experiencing in our lives, how it's kind of pulling us apart, how the acceleration of time, thanks to technology and uh, the uh, growth economy, the, the need for uh, profits and market share, uh, accelerating time, ever shorter thinking, ever, uh, and that it's enabling us to use up as a species, as a culture, to use up everything, use up all the resources. And what we don't use up, we destroy or contaminate. And this is uh, a, if you let it, this can be a great pain in your life. And it's a productive pain. So I don't believe in Buddhist comfort at any price, in case you haven't picked that up by now. <laughs> Uh, that uh, to 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 uh, grieve is over this uh, is is uh, highly uh, uh, productive in 
in creative and compassionate terms. So uh, I have found that in the Buddha Dharma, there are teachings and practices that can uh, help to open us up to uh, a much larger temporal context. I go like this because, you know, we are urged by our consumer society to th see ourselves in a very constricted, small way from our birth in this lifetime to our death in this lifetime. Whereas, as a species, and we can look back at our ancestors too in certain periods who were first, our, our context of our lives can be much larger to include the, all those who went before the past generations and include the future generations as well. And that this is beautiful work and that this is very, very uh, spacious and uplifting. Um, and that it gives, uh, it gives me a lot of staying power. And the, uh, so in the Avatamsaka Sutra, that's from a Mahayana school uh, called of Huayan Buddhism, Flower Garland Sutras, so forth. Uh, the implications of this are played out with a great extravagance of language and imagery. And uh, where the uh, imagery of back, you know, this was like the 6th century uh, AD, but it's really what it's portraying is very much a holographic view of reality that you are not only, each of us is not only part of a whole, the whole is part of us. And it's scientifically as well as spiritually uh, to be apprehended uh, and internalized. And um, it's uh, very rich. Uh, in our own era from science, you have uh, the th thought of David Bohm and Carl Prebrum, and you have people like Stan Groff, who in his work with altered states through breathing or through LSD has found that uh, we have data about phylogenetic processes in the galactic world that we couldn't have gotten biographically. So it's like the cell just like the cell of our body has our body, whole body in it. We have the whole uh, universe uh, in us in some form. And uh, this, uh, when I was here uh, a week ago yesterday for the um, Earth Day, uh, I uh, evoked this as a that I feel for us to, we can open, there's so many pressures on us right now of, um, from our culture and from seeing what's happening that we can uh, pop into uh, a, a transform, transformed experience of the past and the present and the future. And I don't want this to sound Ooh, or like that, but it's, uh, you just, 
partly it's languaging, partly it's what you're paying attention to. And uh, in the deep time, we do a lot of, um, in the workshops, a lot of practices where we practice hanging out with the ancestors or with the future generations. So they're real to us, that their claim on life is real to us. And that we can um, use, we use our moral imagination to uh, expand the time of our lives. So um, I would like to close uh, sort of with a dedication of the merit uh, to all beings by playing for you uh, a, and I'll give you a signal, playing for you uh, the descriptions from the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, uh, of uh, what you can open to through your love for life, through your intention to be with uh, all beings, to serve them, to enjoy them. Uh, and they, uh, that's very powerful. Uh, that intention is, the in that intention of the bodhisattva is called bodhicitta. And uh, because we don't know how things are going to turn out, because we live in such uncertainty. There's no way to know how it's going to turn out in our phenomenal world. But what, there's one thing we can count on, and that's our intention. That's our caring. That's where we're ready to put our life. And interestingly enough, they, uh, I just, my last book is called Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. And it's co-authored with uh, Chris Johnston, a, a, a British uh, doctor addiction specialist and um, who has been with me in the work that reconnects for the last 25 years and facilitates it a lot in the, in the United Kingdom. And uh, so we, we were writing this book to show what we'd learned from uh, this work, which is deeply informed by everything I've shared with you this morning. And, um, but there were two, I, two phrases that don't, we weren't able to translate into English. One, because it's not for Buddhists. One is bodhisattva, and the other is bodhicitta, the intention for the welfare of all beings. I mean, you can say it, but then you need, what's that? Seven words, or what, but we don't have a term for it. So I was delighted when my co-author, Chris, uh, said, you know, Let's just keep those. We'll keep those terms, bodhisattva and bodhicitta. 
And uh, so I play for you now as conclusion uh, the uh, a passage from the Avatamsaka Sutra called The Ten Enterings of the Bodhisattva. And these are ten kind of meditative moves where you can just imagine yourself putting your intention behind it. You don't know how to do it, but you, you're sort of ready. You know, after all, you are the receptacles right now of, uh, at least on planet Earth, of at least uh, four and a half billion years of, of uh, particular conditions to shape your heart-mind. You've got a lot of equipment in there. You're only using a fragment of it. So you listen to what the Bodhisattva does and uh, experience how, uh, how nice that would be. <laughs> and this voice is of Kathleen Sullivan, a, a nuclear educator, very active in the United Nations and in Japan. When a bodhisattva attains the ten wisdoms, she can then perform the ten universal entrings. What are they? To bring all the universes into one hair and one hair into all the universes to bring all sentient beings bodies into one body and one body into all sentient beings bodies to bring inconceivable cowpots into one moment and one moment into inconceivable cowpots. To bring all the Buddha's dharmas into one dharma and one dharma into all the Buddha's dharmas to bring an inconceivable number of places into one place and one place into an inconceivable number of places to bring an inconceivable number of organs into one organ and one organ into an inconceivable number of organs to bring all organs into one non-organ 
and one non-organ into all organs. To make all thoughts into one thought, and one thought into all thoughts. To bring all voices and languages into one voice and language, and one voice and language into all voices and languages to make all the three times into one time and one time into all the three times this is the supreme samadhi And so let us dedicate the merit accrued from our acts of attention and presence with each other from what we've received and what we've sought and what we've given to the healing of our world and the benefit of all beings. <laughs>